HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, Heritage Radio Network podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Aaron Iskoff. We'll talk to Aaron about his new book, The World of Natural Wine, and more. We'll taste something I don't know what we're going to taste. Jorge may walk something over to talk about, which kind of reflects the book and the natural wine movement and the vibe. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Born in Pennsylvania, but now a British-American living in France, Aaron Iskoff made his way out to L.A. at the young age of 23, and even to his surprise, became a prominent Italian wine buyer for famed pizza chef Nancy Silverton. Looking for an escape a few years later, Aaron headed to Paris, working in fashion and organically, no pun intended, made his way into the thriving natural wine scene. He hung with all the Paris natural wine luminaries before moving to Beaujolais, where he got a sense of the real natural wine culture and started his wine writing and wine making. In 2015, he launched his wine blog, appropriately named Not Drinking Poison, and he also sommelieted some of Paris's best wine restaurants. Aaron's perseverance and passion for natural wine has led him to write The World of Natural Wine, what it is, who makes it, and why it matters. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Aaron. I'm usually pretty accurate on my intros. Did I hit something wrong? Yeah, I started, I started the Not Drinking Poison in 2010. 2010? Uh, yeah, rather than 2015. What did I say? 2015. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. So and I knew that because it's been it's, it's been a, over it's okay. a decade, and we're going to yeah. talk about that too. It became more interesting from 2015, probably. Yeah, yeah. and you know it's more legit when it's older. Older. All right, so we're talking to Aaron at Frenchette uh, Restaurant in Tribeca. Um, we are in the restaurant during the end of lunch service, so you hear some fun ambient noise. Um, 
And we're sitting here with Aaron right before one of his book signings. He's in the U.S. and he's on a pretty intensive, uh, I guess, tour or a bunch of stops to promote the book. And we'll talk about that. So, Aaron, I want to start it. I want to start this way. And I said this to you offline. A lot of people know who you are because they follow you on the blog, anxious for the book, know you in the business. But there's a lot of people who don't. So if you would indulge me and take a few minutes and talk to me about your journey in life and wine that got you to why we're sitting here today, which is writing, you know, this great book. And I think I led on to some stuff in the intro, so. Yeah, I think you just about covered it. That's um, it? We can go home? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See you later. I, um, I, I, got, I got into, I, I grew up with no wine culture whatsoever. Um, Where in Pennsylvania? Uh, around the Westchester area. So not um, far from Philly. No, not in pretty, Philly, pretty far but out. Not, yeah. Not, yeah, not in Philly. That's true. Yeah, um, and then uh, yeah. So I, but I, well, I went to school in Boston um, uh, to college, and so Emerson. Uh, yeah, Emerson. my wife's alma mater. Yeah, uh, and uh, I to make money, I began waiting tables, and the best way to get better tips is to know how to sell wine a little bit. So. That's kind of how I got into got into wine was waiting tables. So, just hospitality at the basic level interested you. You're like, let me embed myself a little more. Let me. No, it was it, it was really it was just a way to make money. It was the best way to make money while in college. Uh, and you know, I think there's a there's right. a, a glamour associated at that, at that age with working in a in a fine restaurant that you can't afford. And uh, right. so I uh, I did that for a few years in Boston, and then I left. Boston to go to Los Angeles. Uh, I tried to graduate early because I was quite sick of Boston, and uh, I feigned an interest in film in order to be part of the LA program that Emerson had. Um, and then I moved to LA, and then I graduated college and immediately needed a job, obviously because I had no money whatsoever. And that's when I uh, I wound up at, at Moza because I was just literally handing out resumes left and right. I didn't really fit the profile of a of a good bartender or waiter in Los Angeles because if you're if you're you know if you're sort of a skinny bookish guy, uh, there you know there's there's like a lot of like handsome, extremely professionally charming uh, men and women ahead of you in line for all of these jobs. Because hey, don't yeah. sell yourself short. You're skinny, you're bookish, yeah. but you're handsome. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. I would tell you they Tell me I've got a very good face for podcasts. You do have yeah. a good podcast face, which is why I'm a podcaster. Thank you. Um, did you know, was, was Matzah like, did they hit it hard by that point? Were they famous? Was Nancy sort of a celebrity then, a, or that was the early stages? It was an absolute roaring instant success, that restaurant. Really? There was a line out the door for 12 hours of the day from noon till midnight. And for me, that was a really a trial by fire in terms of because a month after I began working there as a server, um, my the guy who became my first mentor in wine, David Rosoff, who still uh, is, is in the L.A. restaurant scene and wine scene, a wonderful guy, he uh, he offered to to promote me to manager and to teach me how to be a wine buyer. Was that done because you really were, you know, involved and interested and I want to know more? He just thought you were a good guy and he needed somebody. <laughs> I think he needed somebody. Okay. I think I, I think there was there was a major staffing crisis at that time, and so was there the bar any was, low, was there any slant then towards you know natural wines, or was it just wine generally I mean, Italian? There, I would guess exactly. It was yeah. a small Italian wine list, uh, just fifty selections at that time, and 
I, I quickly realized doing the wine list that nobody was there for the wine. They were there for these cult pizzas um, that, had that had really become this sort of media phenomenon in Los Angeles at the time. And so I realized that I could just do absolutely whatever I pleased with the wine list and people would just lap it right up. So the first thing I did was banish any grape variety that wasn't native Italian. You know, like, so there was no Cabernet, no Merlot, no, you know, no Pinot Noir, nothing. Um, so you made it a pure Italian wine list. Well, of course, just pure Italian. But then, of course, then I, then I started bringing everything to organics or as much as possible, as much as it was possible at the time, because I mean, there's Wait, still... Wait, so talk to me about that. You started bringing everything to organics while you were at matzah because... Well, I mean, what made you realize just, it made it sense then? Seemed like the hip thing to do. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I really, so I, I had very only a dim awareness of this stuff at that time. It was sort of This is in 2006 at that time. enlightenment. Yeah. That's um, interesting. So you um, do that for what, a few well, years? I, I think I was, uh, at that time, at that time, you know, in the wine world, like 2006 through 2008, it was, it was still the, I think, an era where biodynamics got a lot of buzz and controversy um, as being somehow this sort of witchy version of organics and it seemed so radical and I think there's still it's something I try to address in the early chapters of my book uh, is, is that there's still a lot of confusion in the marketplace between biodynamics and natural wine alright so um, we're going to talk about that um, because I, I think that's not the same story it, it may not be the number one issue but it's an issue that I think a lot of people don't understand or grapple with so let's just stay with the timeline. So you do matzah, you, you kind of get to do some fun stuff because nobody's, you know, busting your balls or whatever. But then what happens? After a few years, it sounds like... I was, actually, I was, I was in line for a big promotion there because the, I, I moved over to the Austria Mozza, which we'd opened that by then. And then the guy I was working for there, a great sommelier called Jared Heber, he left. Um, and I was kind of like the next in line to be... Like you the know, head wine guy? Yeah, the head or? wine guy had this much larger, more impressive wine list. And I thought, well, I guess maybe this maybe this wine thing could turn into a career for me. It's you know, if I'm like I, I was twenty five at the time, I was like, Man, maybe I'm gonna have like a really cool career in wine. And then uh, some decision was made higher up after David had already offered me the job. He was gonna get back to me with a salary offer. And I think at that time uh, the Batali Bastianich group was, you know, heavily involved in the restaurant. I believe Bastianich still is. Batali, not for obvious reasons. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think uh, some, someone on their end kind of over, overrode, overruled David, uh, and uh, David ended up having to rescind the job offer. And I was like, buddy, come on, man, you know I can't stay. You can't do that to somebody. And you know what? In the end, that may have been... That was the impetus for me to get, to get out of Los but, Angeles. So that and happens, to, and I totally get how you feel and screwed yeah. and... But how long and why, you know, are you bolting out and going to Paris? I mean, how long does it take to figure out what the next step is? That, that was always a, uh, I, I think... Looming. We, well, it was, more, it was more just because I knew I had, at the time it was pre-Brexit, and I, I had a British passport through, thanks to my stepfather, who is English. He's from the northern England. And uh, I, um, I my, you know, my, my, still my, you know primary interest in this whole wine thing is actually the writing. Um, I, I like writing, and uh, wine keeps me writing. And um, as a writer, I always had a chip on my shoulder about only speaking one language, um, because all, all my favorite writers, you know, all, all, of the, all of the great, impressive, imposing classics from Beckett to Nabokov and all these things. Wait, you know, so to the They all spoke many languages. To the writing point, 
Yeah. Obviously, when you started working wine at Pizzeria Matza and then you decide to go to Paris, were you writing? Was writing an aspiration? When you got there, that was the time to start it? I mean, is that... Because you corrected me, you started in 2010, not 2015. Yeah. This is a little before that, right? Or um, right yeah, around? basically, as soon as I got to Paris... Um, also, that, I mean, to, that was why I wanted to move to Paris, was basically because I figured that would be how I would learn French. And so at least I'd have a second language. And I had met some uh, fashion designers, some very kind fashion designers and fashion photographers in Los Angeles, who at my going away party from LA, I hadn't quite figured out what the hell I was doing. And, uh, ah. and they were like, oh, you want to move to Paris? Well, you know, we've got some friends there at this fashion company, and sometimes they hire that way. Uh, so maybe we can find you a job. So the initial hookup was through some contacts and friends. Yeah, some regulars in my restaurant became friends. And it pushed you into fashion, yeah. not wine necessarily. Exactly, yeah. So tell me what you were doing and how long. Um, so I, I, it turned out to be it was an internship for a Japanese fashion company in Paris. And I, uh, I ended up working there for six years. And it was wow. when I discovered the French 35-hour work week uh, <laughs> that I realized that I might as well have a second career as a wine writer. So... At the beginning of the fashion thing, you weren't doing much wine. No, not really? at all. I, I, was, I, I moved to Paris really to leave the wine did industry. Did you enjoy that? I mean, did you go to bed happy and wake up anxious to go to work? Did you Working. mind the scene or the vibe in fashion? It was all quite alien to me. It was? For, for like the whole six years? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I think I made some wonderful friends uh, through that scene as well and people that I'm still great friends with. Even la you know, last night at... Uh, you know, we did we did a little book release event at Night Moves, uh, the kind of the, the nightclub next to the Four Horsemen in Brooklyn. Justin Chano uh, and Justin Robert Chano. Dentis. Exactly, and uh, Amanda McMillan, uh, the the general manager. She's a she's a friend that I made back in the fashion scene as well because she was a, a friend of uh, my colleague Daphne, who was the head of press for New York at the time, and so we met in completely different context. Very so it cool. was really like a reunion last night. It was really Very wonderful. Very cool. So. What happens? You approach about six years, and towards the end, you're starting to write. You're starting to pursue your passion of wine writing. No, I mean, I I, I began the, the the blog, the not drinking poison thing, because now now I don't even know what to call it, because now it's on Substack. Um, I moved it from Blogger then to WordPress, and now it is on Substack. It's still called not drinking poison, um, but even like the. You, you're supposed to call it a newsletter, but I guess it, it's still, it's basically yeah, like a blog. It's a, I don't know. What. In all my time spent on it and reading it and yeah. seeing an older iteration and the newer one, the Substack, I, I couldn't figure out exactly what it was. I mean, the content's amazing and I get what you're doing, but I'm yeah. just, I'm, I was trying to put the format into, you know, some kind of well, box yeah, I mean, and maybe it even, didn't matter. Even, even the, like the, one of the, the main guys at Substack, we were, we were asking him like about the terminology. I was, uh, at one point, like, you, do you call this a newsletter? Because when you say newsletter, people think you have to kind of be there, signed up to get it. But if it's on Substack, then you can just visit the site and it's all archived there. It's like a blog. And he's like, well, it's true newsletter is kind of a misnomer. You know, I just try to call them Substacks now. So I think he's trying to, you know, become like a Xerox or Kleenex or a, you know. And that works thing. for you, right? I mean, you don't need any. So I, honestly, I, I really like Substack. I think it's been a, it's been yeah. a hugely liberating force for I, me. I, I like yeah. the format. Yeah. Um, all right, so you leave the fashion thing, and I guess it's fair to say that the wine thing, you know, really takes a turn specifically, you know, into wine. So take me in that direction. Well, I think, um, it, I mean, one key reason is I was going through a breakup, 
Uh, <laughs> so you know, it makes you kind of want to change your life. Yeah. But I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, there's a if if you like to express things in a very fairly uh, precise way, you're almost a liability when you work in fashion. You know, because why when you, when you express things too polite or too precisely then you, you've removed any of the mystique that would otherwise allure shoppers or allure, allure consumers. That's interesting. Um, so, you know, there, there's a reason why, you know, there's a reason why, you know, perfume advertisements have no, you know, tasting notes with them. Right. Know, they're, they're just an image of a beautiful person draped right. in jewels on a beach somewhere. It's so true. It's the mystique. Um, and uh, so, obviously, you know, any descriptive capacity that I have was completely underexploited in the fashion industry. And, uh, so I, I wanted to do something else. I, I figured it was kind of high time to change my life. And um, at that time, I'd become fascinated with the kind of the conversation about wine that occurs between vignerons, between winemakers. Um, it's, it's, it's nothing like the kind of the, the consumer-facing uh, American sommelier kind of discourse or even American wine writer discourse. But do you, do you feel that way because all those years in Paris... You're now sitting in the wine bars, getting a sense of the scene, and to your point, that's not going on here, or wasn't? No, it's not that, because, I mean, honestly, even, the, even the, the kind of wine conversation that happens at wine bars in Paris also bores me at this point. Oh, yeah? Um, it's, it's, it's quite trite. Um, but I like the... What, what happened in Paris is that it's not like in America where you have this three-tier system in a lot of places where, you know, you're, where you're... You know, where wine as a subject is uh, mediated by people selling it at all times. Um, you very rarely find yourself sitting and drinking with a, a winemaker or a vigneron, someone who, you know, or someone growing grapes. You know, very rarely. Whereas uh, in Paris, you know, because it's such a, you know, it is by and large the cultural capital of, you know, of France as well as the literal capital of France. Uh, it, um, you know, you get all the winemakers coming through, the vignerons coming through, and. Uh, who will be delivering their their own wines to the various bistros, you know, parking illegally and you know running in with a, a bunch of cases of wine and then and then having a splash of wine with the you know the staff and then running off to deliver again. That's or, cool. Or you know, I don't know. You, you just see you know you meet a lot of uh, vignerons uh, living in Paris and and it was at that point that you realize or that I realized that that, that the discourse about wine growing, wine making among vignerons was so much more interesting and so much more granular and tactile for me. And uh, so I kind of wanted to be more part of that, more privy to that. And I figured an interesting way to do that would be to move to the Beaujolais. And, uh, and why the Beaujolais? That, that's kind of the, the birthplace or an important part for the movement, right? Yes, definitely. I, I mean, I, that's why, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's definitely it's the, the cradle of natural, the natural wine movement, if you want to you know, call it like so that. So I wanted, I want a little later into the interview I want to talk about that but you go there and you stay there for how long? About a year and a half full time and then I was still going back all the time for another six months or so you know kind of two years on and off and yeah. you're living writing embedding yourself in the Beaujolais culture and don't you help making wine? I mean you in, initially my, my, my project because I, I quit the, the fashion industry job because I wanted to, I thought I could write a book about wine, and uh, 
my, my big advice for aspiring writers out there would be to never quit your day job until you have the book deal. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. it definitely took me another four years to get a book like deal. sound like a parent now. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. uh, it was definitely you know, four years a bit in the wilderness after I quit my, my, my comfortable job in, a, in, a, in an office in Paris. Um, I, uh, I thought it I thought it'd be interesting to write a, a book about the wines of the Beaujolais. I was, to be honest, I was quite inspired by um, uh, a British, I believe, wine writer called Wink Lorch. Yeah, um, who Wink's wrote, still around, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she, her book about the Jura uh, region, it's very uh, it's very thorough. You know, it doesn't have any specific natural bent, and nor does she. But uh, but it's it's very thorough, very educational, um, and and really. You know, goes into a, a granular study of the uh, of the terroir, of the local culture, and uh, I really thought that would be interesting to do for the Beaujolais. I thought it would be a nice sort of bite-sized project that would then maybe leave me well positioned to write uh, a different book about natural wine. Um, and in the end, absolutely zero publishers were interested in that Beaujolais book. <laughs> uh, it was too um, it was too narrow focus uh, for a large market like America. And uh, in the end, it was thanks to my fantastic agent, Laura Nolan, um, and uh, she, you know, a couple years down the line, she uh, had learned of someone who was interested in doing a large book about natural wine, and uh, she suggested me for the role. That's great. So that's how, uh, from Beaujolais to the book. And, and of course, the Beaujolais was a very, very key foundation. I think one of the reasons why there aren't more books uh, about natural wine is is honestly the, the the Beaujolais genesis of it is a fairly forbidding topic. Um, but do you have to spend time on that to be honest to cover the topic? I, I like think if like like that seems preventative in a way, or, I, or I, I hampering. It, you no, know, it depends how you know what kind of approach you take to the topic. I mean, I, like the first thing that I that I told. The publisher when we were starting this book project was that I don't want this book to be my definition of natural wine. I wanted it to be a really kind of sociological, anthropological approach to natural wine as a cultural movement. It's like if I were writing a book about punk or about hip-hop. So that's a good um, segue because <laughs> and we and you will take this wherever we want because you know that was a good setup. I mean I've devoted many episodes more now than ever, you know, to natural wine, from A to Z, from Alice Firing to Zev Rovine, you know, there's your A to Z, you know, right there. Um, and we've tried, because you have to, um, on the podcast, to find what natural wine is. And I never wanted to put it in that box, you know, here's what natural wine is and all that. But I have you now. So, however we, you want to not define it, but, you know... Can, can, I, can I give you a fairly Mandarin uh, yeah. and, and, and geeky and obscure definition? Yeah. Um, I think for me the, the best definition of natural wine is Thierry Puzlat getting into a fist fight with Alain Castex at the funeral of Marcel Lapierre. All right, so and this I is something know those that people, and you know them better than me. <laughs> so let's just let's just talk about the players, describe them, and who they are. It's sort of like you know some yeah. fist fight in New York with famous people, but you know why they were so. Yeah, Puzalot. Describe who he is. Well, I think I think to, to get to get into why that's a funny definition of natural wine, you have to you have to talk about Marcel Lapierre first. Right. Um, and obviously, I think 
natural wine has segmented and fragmented in so many ways uh, since his era. He died in 2010. Um, and, uh, but he began doing his first uh, experiments in sulfite-free vinification in 1978, and he began actually selling a small quantity of wine vinified and bottled without sulfites uh, in around, 90, I believe, 1984. Um, there's, you hear a lot of different stories about which precise year it was. Um, but uh, uh, so he, he, despite the fact that um, the whole natural wine movement has really fragmented and, you know, become very, very global uh, since his era. Within, um, among French winemakers and even among winemakers abroad, you know, everyone acknowledges his central role in promoting this ideology and promoting an awareness, a consciousness of purity and vinification and making that a criteria, uh, you know, helping return that to being a criteria, uh, a, a, you know, of good, a criterion of good winemaking. Um, and uh, so... It was his funeral. Uh, I wasn't there. I have this story secondhand from a number of sources. Uh, and that was in 2010. And um, uh, Thierry Puzlat is uh, an acolyte. To, you know, he was influenced by Marcel Lapierre as well. He's, he was, he's, you could call him probably one of the most influential winemakers of the second generation of natural winemakers. He joined his brother Jean-Marie Puzlat at their estate in the loire et cher which is about two hours and a bit west of Paris. Um, near the town of Blois and uh, yeah he, he joined his brother at his estate there in 1994 but before then uh, he had worked uh, you know worked around in uh, various other estates in Burgundy and in uh, in Provence and uh, I believe as I understand it and this could be contested as well by several participants but as I understand it he became connected with the Marcel Lapierre circle at that time which was already kind of a thriving little little underground um, through an enologist called Jan Roel, who he met while he while he Puzlat was working as vineyard manager of uh, or cellar master of um, Domaine de la Tour du Bon in Bondol, and uh, so anyway, Puzlat got into Lapierre Circle, fell in love with this notion of natural naturalness and vinification, because um, it still wasn't called natural wine at that point; it was still called Vincent Sulfitre, uh, which is a bit of a misnomer, but wine without sulfites. Um, That's how it was referred in the early in the early circles in the 1980s and 1990s. Was uh, that zero sulfur or just very low sulfur? Often just very low, yeah. but sometimes zero. It really depended on the estate. Um, and uh, and uh, so. That's Thierry Puzlat, who then, of course, he's, be, he's still a, a really fantastic, incredible winemaker, has a, an estate called Claude de Tubeuf. Um, right. They do a lot of beautiful estate wines. They also do a lot of negociant wines, which where they purchase the grapes. He also works as a wine importer, importing some of the, the leading lights of uh, Italian and Spanish and Georgian natural wine into France. Um, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. Um, and, uh, and then... I guess there was a dispute... <laughs> um, about? About... Uh, and it was, it was about Alain Castex's wine, as I understand. Alain Castex is a figure really more from the... F he really... He, I believe he began making wine in, I want to say, 1985 um, in Corbière at the time. But then he got into natural winemaking later. Um, uh, he worked with his wife, Guylaine Manier, uh, in Banyuls. Uh, and that was from around the mid-90s at some time. I don't have the exact year uh, off the top of my head. And uh, influenced by people like, um, I believe Bernard Balassen, uh, who's a, a Languedoc vigneron who's still alive as well, um, he got into uh, natural winemaking as well, and also influenced by people like Lapierre as well. 
and uh, but he represents a different uh, a different wing of the natural wine movement these days, m- more radically opposed to sulfite addition um, than someone like Puzlat, who will use it if he has to, if he feels he has to. Wait, so is my take that he's more extreme than Puzlat? In that regard, yes. And was that part of the riff? Apparently, like I'm sure they've patched it over at this point, but right. it was a so, someone had heard someone. Uh, badmouth their wines in Paris and say that there was some volatility or mouse in the wines and it led, literally led to a fist fight at a funeral in the Beaujolais. Um, and this I think is a, it's a snapshot of kind of where the, of where the natural wine scene is today. This, uh, uh, it's, uh, that's, that's kind of the contemporary discourse within the natural wine scene it is, uh, is almost no sulfite addition radical enough. Really? Yeah, is where the conversation is I think. So that's, uh, <laughs> or that's one of the key one of the key factors yeah. in the conversation today. Um, it's funny, you know. I it's not that I'm trying, but you know, I, I want to be able to explain or define natural wine, and you come back to me with sort of this fight, <laughs> really which ob- is great. Really obtuse, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I want to throw back to you that yeah. the title of your book is yeah. the world of is. natural wine. Yeah. What is it? So okay. that that warrants an answer we who do makes it. it and why it matters but I think based on how you answer the question and I read the book is it's not an answer it's there, there's, there are many different things that lead to the answer and yeah. I think that's what's beautiful about the I mean, book I'm, I'm being a little bit coy about that no I, mean, I, like, know, I, I know on some, on some level you can simply say that it is or at least I think uh Few would disagree with me if I say it's wine made from grapes that were farmed more than organically, which is to say at least organically, but ideally with organics as an entry way, as a the beginning of a path towards better farming. So made from grapes, farmed in such a way, vinified, without additives, transformative, uh, analogical procedures, uh, and without without. Uh, with almost no or zero added sulfites and with neither fining nor filtration. Right. Um, those I, are, that's really the basic. Yeah, I mean, for me, those are like... The, the, one still finds a lot of filtered natural wine, filtered purportedly natural wine. I, that's sort of a, a particular bugaboo of my own. I was going to say, is filtration... I, I know that's yeah. it's not really natural wine if there's filtration. There are natural wines that are filtered. There are many respected natural wine estates who will still filter some of or some of their wines. Or, or okay, are they you know. using fining, or are they running it no, through filtration, these filtration? Often with the you know diatomaceous earth filtration. Okay. Yeah, um, but uh, or I mean, or various you know cartridge filtration or plate filtration. Um, but there's I mean there's it's 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 a it's a, it's a really nebulous subject filtration. To me. You know, we talk about defining natural wine, but to me, and I want to talk to you about this before we get into the book, because there's specifics in the book. There's, you said it in the book, it's not just a beverage, but a culture, and there's an ethical imperative. And that's what's important overall about wine, and I want you to, you know, talk about that a little. Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned that in, in, in the very first, uh, you know, in the little introduction text that I wrote for the book. And that really came from uh, living, living in a winemaking community in France. You, you, you see 
the ravages, both environmental and and in terms of the health of the of the local populace, the amount and I, obviously I won't cite particular cases because it just seems it seems uh, a little bit indelicate to use somebody's health condition or some family's you know tragedy as a as a as a way to push natural wine, but the uh, the the amount of of cases of uh, of birth disabilities or early onset cancer that you see in winemaking communities in France is astonishing and 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 tragic. Yeah, yeah people have not talked about that. Yeah. And uh, well, I mean, these guys are literally living on it. Yeah, I mean, I had a friend. I had, it, I, I, had, I had a friend. A friend in the Beaujolais lost his mother and his uncle within the span of two or three years from each other, both in their early early forties, uh, both to cancer, and that, that's that's not normal. It's really just not normal, and you, and this is this is linked to the use of herbicides. It's linked to the use of synthetic pesticides. I mean, every the estates that employ these methods of farming always say that they're doing it because it's an economic imperative for them, in order to keep wine cheap for consumers abroad on export markets. And conveniently, these consumers abroad on export markets never need to see these environmental ravages and the ravages to the health of the community. Um, it's a horrible thing to try and raise children, not that I've done this, but raise children where they can't walk on the vines because, right. of, because it's poisonous. Right. I mean, wasn't yeah. there a time before the war people were pretty practical about that and then it became more industrialized where, you know... I mean, getting... herbicides really, they, they, they came into the scene in France in the mid-70s. Yeah. And they I were, mean, you know, it's not... Like, yeah, or like, yeah, maybe a little it, earlier. It kind but of like, terrorized everything for the last 40 years or something. Well, it's, it's, it's the point where when we, as... as Recently, for example, in the news, there was there was some news about the the death of the fellow who created a uh, two buck chuck. Oh, uh, Francia. Yeah, um, and uh, and of course, there's images of this fellow in his obituaries, and his obituaries were all fairly even-handed, you know, you know, uh, discussions of his career. And you see this guy pictured for press images in his vines, and his vines are like an absolute atrocity, like machine pruned. Monoculture to the horizon. Well, that—that's the ultimate in that example, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, like, that's the industrial formulaic turnout. As and, much and you think how many how many readers of these of these major news media publications are looking at that viticulture and realizing what an atrocity it is, like what an economic, er, an ecological, and you know, and human health catastrophe it is. Um, we don't twig it. When we look at images of vineyards, you look at every conventional estate uh, on earth, they're, they're putting beautiful images of their vineyards in their brochures and everything. And well, nobody the Napa twigs. Napa vineyards are these rolling, trimmed, you know, no but, cover. But people don't, people don't twig uh, the no, absence of grass cover, that that is what's unnatural, good that is, is the bizarre. opposite of yeah. what's shown, you know, which yeah, is crazy. Exactly, yeah. I mean, like, everyone should know that, like, you know, vines have grass. It's just weird when they don't have grass. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, let's... We have to take a quick break, um, and then when we come back, I want to get into the book. Um, so we're talking to Aaron Ayskoff. Aaron just wrote um, his new book, uh, The World of Natural Wine. When we come back, we're going to get specifically into a lot of stuff in the book, stuff that we broached. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Spresatura. An Italian noun that means a studied carelessness. Picture this. Woven basket in hand at the farmer's market. Shocked oysters, ripe tomatoes, rapini, crusty bread, and a perfectly chilled bottle of bed nat. Cutting lag lags to set the tone, 
Red lipsticks, friends arrive, table is set. Slow dance under the sun, barefoot on the grass. A cheeky smirk while lighting up a cigarette. Apron comes off, inhibitions do as well. Hello friends at Grape Nation. I am Mariana Velasquez, author of Colombiana the Cookbook. And I created a line of hosting where Casa Velasquez, as an extension of my life, inviting you to fully embrace your imperfect, unbridled self. Come with me to casavelasquez.co and reimagine your hosting essentials so we can set the tone for your table and home. Casa Velasquez is a mutual supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Will climate change alter the beer and wine we drink? Come find out at Fern Talks and Eats in Brooklyn the evening of October 24th. The event will include a panel discussion with leading writers and makers, including wine writer Alice Fearing, Garrett Oliver, head brewer at Brooklyn Brewery, and science and nature writer Rowan Jacobson. Come taste the future with a special selection of beers and wines. More information and tickets are available at thefern.org. This episode is supported by HRN business member, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Aaron Ayskoff. Um, Aaron, let's talk about the book, and we can get deeper into some of the things that you know we've already talked about. You know, I want to talk a little more about farming and all that. Um, but I, I just want to say, you know, I read the book. I read it, and then I used it as a reference guide when I put the interview together. Um, and I think it's brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think it's rich. I think it's deep. Thanks. Um, it's informative. Um, and it's incredibly thorough. <laughs> you know, when you talk about getting into a topic, it's like, gee, I was left without this or that. Um, you broach other wine regions and you do it well. But we'll talk about why, you know, you approached it the way you did. Um, just quickly, I always have to get the vitals out of the way. So what prompted you to write the book? I mean, what, 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 like you'd been on the ground in Beaujolais, you'd worked in it, wine. It was that the publisher you'd... wanted a book. <laughs> so it was really like, hey, why don't you? I mean, this wouldn't, I, I wouldn't. I and would never you have... write and you love to write. Yeah, so... I mean, I, but I never would have elected myself to try, and, to, to try and tackle the entire subject of natural wine. That's why, like I said, I think I mentioned, I touched on it earlier, but when they, when they asked me to, to write a book about all natural wine, I was like, well, look, here, here are the ways that that could possibly be achievable. And I said, we have to focus on it as a, as a cultural movement. We have to talk about, really, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s. When you say um, a cultural movement, are they, are they like, well, what do you mean? You know, we just want you to write a book about wine. It was a little bit like that, it, yes. There was some yeah. of that? Yeah. I think, um, I think in America, the, the, it's been kind of confused as sort of a simple lifestyle choice, you know, or something. And it, and it is to some extent there's an ethic and an aesthetic in natural wine um, but it's not it's not like a wellness thing which is a now, really a huge when, a, a huge miscommunication about it in America when did all that hit you know when you spoke to the publisher about you know writing a book was that three, four, five years ago that was in 2019 January 2019 okay. uh, that, that we signed the book deal and yeah. you buy in pretty quickly and you start putting together the idea of the book yeah, well, that, that, I mean, actually, I'd, I'd put together the, the pitch before then, because okay. signing, signing the actual contract is uh, later on in the process, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to write it? Um, 
I mean, really, it's included. There's some some of those pictures in there that I took back in 2013. You know, there's so there was yeah. stuff that's just it's, part of yeah. That's because it's, your life's movement. Yeah, but uh, but really, I've been trying to work on a wine book since 2015. A lot of a lot of the material that I've been kind of putting together for what was intended as a Beaujolais book that wound its way into found its way into this book about natural wine as a whole. Um, and uh, and yeah, but but really, in terms of officially working on this exclusively that's been since 2019 okay yeah um i want to talk about the book now how not what you did to write it but is this the type of book that will warrant in a good way say three five seven years from now an update i certainly hope so this is an ever moving i mean there's even errors that we're going to correct in the second printing of this one but that that goes without saying but i mean the world is so exciting that Mm. it's going to require yeah, I mean, if, if there's a demand for it, I'd be happy to update. I mean, there's there there were already many many estates that I would, would have liked to in, have included in the book that, due to page limits, uh, I, I wasn't able to. Right. Um, yeah, and so that was a whole politically right. touchy thing to figure out as well. Um, there's basically three parts of the book. I mean, you open the book with a section on how to think about wine, how the grapes are grown, and how natural wine is made. Yes. Um, I think the bigger picture for natural wine is that it's not just good for our palate, but for the planet. And we broached the farming thing, but I guess, and I want to reemphasize how important farming and farming practices are in natural wine and in the world, and why isn't everybody doing that? Exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, I think wine, why wine is a great entry point to talking about farming is is that it it's a subject that often is seen as frivolous uh it's not a basic human need it's not you know food clothing or shelter it's wine we don't actually need it to live as much as uh many you know vignerons might want to convince you otherwise but uh and so if we are gonna enjoy it drink it make it part of our lives then like the the first criteria should be that (laughs) But it doesn't kill the planet. It does, you know, that, 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 that it's not vastly harmful to rural communities. But do you think that is covered well enough in other areas, in food, organic Not food? at all. I mean, no, I mean, I think there's more of a passion one, one here of, in wine. I think, I think much... It's, it's passion in wine because at least it's, 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 it's a, you know, grapes and then wine happen to be a, a product that is intimately reflective of the circumstances of its production. Um, whereas it's, it's a little harder for us to, to taste a turnip and know whether it's an organic turnip or, or, right. a, or a chemically farmed turnip. Right. Um, but turnips are just as important <laughs> on, you know, on some level. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's almost like a, a, a market and media reality why we're not talking about uh, the necessity of restaurants to work with exclusively organic or more than organic produce because it's nearly impossible for them to exist <laughs> you know in the in our current economy while working with exclusively organic or more than organic produce is that a, that's an economic thing or or uh, availability or i mean probably a little of both but i mean yeah. i mean how few restaurants market themselves that way almost none well and Many the, the, there's deep a, there's years a ago, farm to table, yeah. and on the back of the menu, they'd give you their suppliers. Which is People great. I'm, still I'm all do for that. that but yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is a very small amount in yeah, that yeah. sense. Um, and is it everything, or is it just their, you know, their proteins that they're giving you their sourcing from? You know, where's the celery coming from? You know? <laughs> yeah. So the book, it certainly helped me, and it very skillfully talks about natural wine. And people... Th- 
Natural wine we talked about is a big box, but you were able to, you know, drill it down a little. There's organic wine, there's biodynamic wine, and then really the third category is natural wine. And just because a wine is organic or necessarily biodynamic doesn't mean it's... Not at all. May, explain that to me a little. You know, people are like, okay, this is good, it's organic. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 definitely, I definitely deal with that, you know, at a reasonable length in the beginning of the book. And to kind of summarize it here, it's that the organics... You have, to, you have to really look at them as separate cultural movements as well. Um, uh, I'd, I'd say the most, I mean, the thing is, I guess to say it in the most simple nutshell kind of way, you can, you can walk to the supermarket at the end of the road or whatever or, uh, and buy an organic, sometimes even a biodynamic wine, and these still will not be natural wines. Um, because right, the, that's the, my point. The, these, the organics and biodynamics are systems of farming, um, and neither of them are really rigorous enough within themselves. When you say to farming, is it exclusive to farming? Organics and bio uh, no, biodynamics, biodynamics yeah, both, both organics and biodynamics, they do also have... Emphasize cellar practices. They do put some limitations on cellar practices, but limitations that are nowhere near rigorous enough. Uh, so give me an example, because it's laid out well in the book, how let's take farming practices organically, biodynamically, and natural. They're, you're not doing certain things naturally that are being done... Or you shouldn't be. Well, it, it, no, I mean, that's that's when you talk about just farming. I mean, nat natural is not a certification. It's important to make that really clear. No, um, I know. Yeah, it's, it's like a, it's a it's a it's a it's a self policing subculture within the wine world, um, and and there there are many natural estates that decline. Um, certification. Yeah, certification. But practice. But proper pra practice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, and on that level, it does require a certain level of uh, of community of uh, trust in the estate um, and I think that the only thing really encouraging that trust is the fact that natural wine is this small self-policing subculture um, vignerons who find themselves abusing abusing that trust with their peers find themselves slowly sidelined within, the, within so that community that's it though I yeah. mean the vignerons are, care and are involved in their self-policing I mean that, mm. that's the difference Ideally, ideally, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not exclusively, but yeah, yeah ideally, I mean, that, yeah. that's an important thing. Um, I think there's, 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 this, there's this continual conversation in the wine media um, uh, about, like, well, saying that consumers on the mass market need to be able to trust natural wine estates, so natural wine must be codified and certified. And I think that's based on a certain misunderstanding um, of the scalability of natural wine. Um, How? In the sense that Great natural wine estates, no one is having difficulty selling their wine. It's all already sold. I know. Uh, to the point where you to, can't to get it. To the point where they don't need to... They, they Prices really don't, have gone up. They really don't need to make themselves more available to um, an even an ever larger mass market. It, it mistakes oftentimes many of these estates' own personal ambitions with growth. They simply are not interested in that. Um, not interested in raising their price due to demand. Not interested in any of these things. Um, and yet we still have a lot of, you know, wizened voices in the conventional mind media saying, well, how does, uh, you know, how does Joe Schmo understand this? And how will, how will he trust you guys? And, you know, how will he trust natural wine estates? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's all right. Um, that, that's an interesting point. Um, let's, let's move along in the book. Um, 
because I really think, <laughs> I said this to you off air too, I'm intimidated by how much information is in the book. And after doing so many podcasts, it's like, how do you broach all these things? And, you know, my way out is just go out and buy the book. <laughs> you know, hopefully, you know, this will point you in that direction. But there's a section in the book called The Pantheon of Natural Wine. That's where you discuss the wine regions, you know, Loire, Beaujolais, Champagne, and all that. Um, explain why the book, and there's a reason, is predominantly focuses, you know, on France. Um, Um, And there's a singular importance, and we broached a little about Beaujolais. Yeah. Uh, It's, 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 again, it it was about taking a a really, uh, you know, cultural, sociological sort of approach to natural wine and how it came to be, why we, why we began talking about natural wine. If you, you know, if you, if you want to, uh, you know, talk about that story. It really it, it's a story that begins in the Beaujolais with people like Marcel Lapierre, Jacques Neaport, Jules Chauvet, who are all discussed at length in the book. Um, they found an audience among a group of eccentrics in Paris in the 1980s, notably Francois Morel, uh, Bernard Pontonnier, uh, and uh, uh, various others. Um, these were these wine bar owners. Yeah, these were, these were wine bar owners uh, who then you know they were the conduit. They, they were they were, they were the initial kind of enthusiasts for this right. this idea of winemaking without sulfites, which was very novel at that time, because um, no one believed it could be done. Basically, it was uh, winemaking had already come to rely to such an extent on sulfite addition that no one ever tried to do it without it, um, or to try to nearly eliminate it, and uh, so they began really supporting these winemakers. And then Paris, the thing about Paris is that today it is still the world's most visited city. It's a, it's a huge window to the world. And so there were generations, there were three distinct waves of early natural wine establishments in Paris, beginning in the 1980s, going into the, you know, the 2000s. And now obviously there's still a bazillion today. Um, it's really a, it's a very, very developed market for natural wine. And uh, that, it was this visibility in Paris that led to uh, it becoming a big thing in Tokyo, in Copenhagen, in uh, San Francisco, in Oakland, and t- uh, New York. And, you know. Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, yeah. talk about Tokyo. I mean, Copenhagen with Nome and all that's been going on for a while. But yeah, it, it's nice. They're to very see early, places. early, you know, um, early adopters of the aesthetic. Yeah. There are, I think, there's 13 sections on all the regions, and then the last section, which may be the 14th. It, you know, you call it. Europe and the Caucasus, which to me, I'm glad you did that. And when we talk about maybe doing, you know, an updated version, maybe that opens up more. But correct me if I'm wrong, some of the most exciting things happening are in that Europe and Caucasus thing, like Austria and Spain all over. Talk Talk to me outside of France about, you know, some notable things. No, of course. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the first to tell to tell everybody I speak to that I, you know, I find those sections of the book to be embarrassingly cursory and superficial. I, I they really just give it a bit of a very you know bird's eye you know kind of overview of what has happened since the development of this of this thriving natural wine community in France. I mean, my my cutoff for uh, for estates for including them as like kind of full page listings in that kind of pantheon of natural wine was I was trying to make that around 2007 2008. I think the the youngest estate that I have in uh, uh, in the profile there, I think, is like Rupert Lois Champagne, who began in 2010 around there. 
um, where they've got a full page profile. And then if we want to talk about the natural wine cultures that have arisen uh, in, in Catalonia, in, uh, in Georgia, in, uh, you know, in Styria, yeah, in Styria and in all these places, they've really coalesced into their, you know, into their present kind of natural wine identified scenes after what happened in France. So really, I, I was trying to take a fairly dispassionate, cold, chronological approach to this. Um, and that's my justification for giving such short shrift to so many scintillatingly nuanced and beautiful wine cultures that exist outside of France. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say short shrift because yeah. that's a little hard, mm. but the coverage isn't as extensive yeah. as some of the other but things, find, but I, I some of it, these yeah. areas and winemakers are, are as jamming as anyone else Absolutely. anywhere. Yeah, you yeah. Know. I, I would love for someone to pay me to write a similar book on, on just Italy. That'd be incredible. I would, yeah. I would I adore mean, Italy, that. Italy, I think after France very much embraced, you yeah. know, the natural wine movement. Yeah. And, uh, so let me ask you a sterile question. Cause I, I think this is important and it's cool. You've basically, when you talk about all the regions, whether it's Chajura or the Loire or Beaujolais and all that, you basically adhere to a format. Like, in each section, it's, it's kind of cool that the same information is disseminated. You know, there's dining recommendations, there's history and all that. You know, just talk me through, you know, when you talk about each region that you make sure, you know, extensive coverage of the winemakers... Yeah, I think I was I was really trying to make keep the book really about natural wine and not to have to make it like an almanac of all French wine regions. Um, and so that's why in the beginning of each chapter, I try to talk about each region's particular history and relationship with this notion of natural wine, because it's important. I think um, often on in, within you know within kind of America mass media wine discourse, we tend to just talk. About, people generalize about French wine or generalize about Italian wine, but really like that's an absurd notion. Uh, the, the, uh, each of these regions uh, has a, a vast and long and varied uh, winemaking history that is quite peculiar and uh, unique to itself. Um, you really have to talk about regions as if they're their own nations, uh, and sometimes even sub-regions of regions as if they're their own nations. Right. Um, you know, the wine culture of Bordeaux has literally nothing in common with the wine cultures of any other region of France. It's, it's, a, it's organized completely differently. It's very strange. Um, and it's due to the fact that that was once part of England. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, and um, so it's, it's important to remember, you know, I mean, with these kind of countries that their unification, you know, as nation states is relatively late. It's, it definitely post-dates their long right. winemaking history. <laughs> Um, so that's why I talk about their unique winemaking histories of each, or natural, you know, their, their unique yeah, histories within natural wine. And then I talk about the wines to know, which is kind of just some a, a couple of famous natural right. wine you bottles lead from those regions. Right, section with literally I, specific yeah. bottle pictures which is, and recommendations. I, I wanted that list to I be like that. A, and that, believe me, people love yeah. that. I mean, I really, I, I guess the the idea is that at the end, if, if even if you know nothing about natural wine, I was hoping that people would be able to pick this book up. And then not sound like idiots when they talk about natural wine afterwards. I think you've accomplished yeah, that. That's the um, you talk about tasting destinations, um, like I said, dining, recos. And I think one of the cool things is you do a thing called Legends in the Making. So you have a wine region that's established with great winemakers, but either it's a generational thing or a new guy is coming and making wine and making some noise. And you make note of that. The, the legends in the making section at the end of each chapter, that was kind of a way for me to uh, talk about 
uh, estate, you know, younger estates that many of many of, some of them are already legends. You know, like Julie. Give Bell- me an example. Julie Balagny and the Beaujolais. She really, I really should have. She should have gotten her own page because her her winemaking, you know, history goes back much further than the creation of her estate in the Beaujolais. She used to be the winemaker at Terre des Chardons uh, near Nîmes, I believe, and uh, and. But she only created her estate in the Beaujolais in like 2009, so it seemed to be sort of after the cutoff. So then I didn't include a full page, and I kind of regretted that in the end. Julie was a really a huge help to me as well. She helped me find uh, a place to stay when I moved to the Beaujolais in 2015. Oh, nice. So she's a, a, a friend and, a, and, a, and an inspiration. Bit of an emotional yeah. attachment. And uh, but that, so those legends, legend the making sections, I really use those to to really shine a light on on younger estates that were my friends. A lot of them. Very um, cool. And, um, uh, we. We talked about this a little earlier, but I, I want to, you know, kind of tighten up the question. Um, the role that importers, wine bar owners, retailers, sommeliers, I, I think they've been the movers and the cheerleaders for natural wine and without... You know, that sort of cadre of people. I mean, do you agree? I mean, you talked about early Paris, you know, bringing in the... Initially, those were intended to be much larger sections in the book. And and so the third third portion of of this book uh, discusses how to find natural wine, how to taste natural wine, how to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so initially, I was planning to really devote long, long areas to profiles of prominent sommeliers and prominent importers and prominent and I soon realized that that was going to be impossible because it would end up taking up like as much as much space as the entire section devoted to yeah I'm okay with that yeah. and I realized that and there's also, that it, many it would have people. gotten super political as well it was going but to be but categorically yeah. they're very influential absolutely people like um, Eric Nario of um, Cave de Pirene in London uh, who also with his wife um, Anna Martons does Vino di Anna in Sicily his career really, really traces the the formation of the natural wine scene and movement. He was one of the first uh, importers of Pierre Auvergnat, uh, and uh, who's a famous uh, Jura winemaker. And uh, really, a, a, he's a, a, an incredibly inspiring and intelligent. What's wine ironic is for me. we're at Frenchette and we're with our friend Jorge, <laughs> and when you talk about the New York natural wine scene, it's not that old. It's not a and Jorge dates back to the beginning with 360 and um, Balthazar when, uh, I forgot his name, was it Nossiter, you know, who went on to make Mondovino and all that. I mean, it all progressed and, you know, here's a guy and, and we're at Frenchette five years ago. This was the first all-natural wine list, um, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but... Yeah, no, it, it, it takes it takes a lot of will and force and charm, uh, I think, to be able to uh, surmount pe- people's uh, champagne, uh, people's uh, prejudices and uh, about about natural wine. And it, it, honestly, it's all a question. There's a beautiful word that um, Dominique Duran used to me once uh, in, in French, and like uh, about uh, talking about people's experience with wine and and their openness towards natural wine. And he was saying it's always a question of parametrage, so your your parameters basically, and how you adjust them, and how you and how, how they how they happen to be set. Um, and uh, it really is a it's a it's a your parametrage when you're tasting wine is your previous wine experience. Um, and I think we're uh, you know at a time in you know in mass culture where several generations have gone by bef- you know without people tasting even an unfiltered wine. 
Well, that yeah. so that leads into my next question. I, I, I think wine drinkers, mainstream wine drinkers, are accustomed to drinking traditional wines. Well, that, tra- that's traditional what they know. Is, a, is a word I don't like to use to regard to <laughs> with regard well, to conventional wines. Well, whatever the other stuff is, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And um, I, I mean, there's incredibly discernible differences. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, um, you, you look at what, what you what, talk what, about. That what is in the, the book. Goal, What is the goal of a, of a conventional enologist? And that is to make a wine estate profitable and economically sustainable. But he does that by making the wine the same thing. By commodifying thing. the heck out of right. the wine. Right. So yeah. that it t- the, the beauty of wine is the difference in the vintage, the, how the climate not Coca-Cola. affects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other way is, and we're yeah. not going to name specific wines, but they just taste the same. They're always deep, dark but, purple. And, and, and everyone always says, oh, well, you know, you're spending so much money on a bottle of wine. You want it to be a consistent experience. But that's just not what agricultural products are. And wine is, first and foremost, you know, it's not a futures commodity, it's an agricultural product. Uh, and Well, I always worry, and I think as time has passed by, it's not as bad, but I worry that people who stray into natural wines for the right reason, there's an inconsistency, there's a funkiness, there's a mousiness, there's a cloudiness, you know, which could be off-putting, and those are the trademarks, you know, of natural wine. But that's you it. know, so how do you taste natural wine? I mean... It's about it's about adjusting one's parametrage. I think it's that. So much of so much of the way we taste wine uh, posits this moment of tasting between the consumer and the wine glass um, as being like the the be all and the end all. This point of judgment, where the work of the farmer, the winemaker, uh, everything is being judged by the consumer and, and leads to that moment. And I think that's a, a, a terribly outdated and and sad way of tasting and, and assessing wine. Really, it's like we should consider ourselves, from my perspective, I think we should consider ourselves students of the, of the winemakers and of the vignerons right. and of these pre-existing wine cultures that predate, story that, 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 predate that. Our, our own preferences. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so, I mean, in my own kind of journey learning about, about wine, I've always tried to learn from vignerons and really get as close to the source as possible. That's what I do on my... On the Substack that I write, the not drinking poison thing, that's where all the uh, where I, I end up putting a lot of the kind of primary source documents. So let's talk about not drinking poison. Yeah, it's it's an active writing opportunity for you. I mean, are you writing on a regular basis? Do you disappear and then come back, I, I, or you I, try? I, to, I try every two weeks to three okay. weeks. I try to so put something on there. Yeah. A couple times a month type thing. Yeah, once or twice a month. Mostly because I'm, I'm basically breaking all of the rules of this platform because this platform is always encouraging us to. Substack, which is very liberal, you're breaking even those rules. You know, they're, they're always saying like, you know, you should check in with your readers like twice a week, and I think that's horrible. I would hate to receive emails from somebody I don't personally know more than twice. Even more than once a week is irritating. Even once a week is a little much. You know, as, as important as wine is, it's not that important that you need to hear about it from the same person twice a week, I feel. Um, so basically, I try not to flood people's inboxes with my newsletter. Do you... Are you lying in bed saying, I got to write about this? Or, I mean, do you have, like, a list of things that you're trying to get to? Um, definitely. I, d- I don't have enough time to deal with it all. There's so much beautiful subjects out there and there's okay. I mean I, so why I, wouldn't you I, write I never, three, four times a month something then. to say. <laughs> why wouldn't you write more? Um it's a, because I'm here with you, Sam. Okay. Well you <laughs> let's disclaim that. You yeah. just wrote a book which took a lot of your time. It's four hundred and forty pages, Sam. You're in the States promoting <laughs> it and I must admit and yeah. I kudos to you, you're on an extensive uh, promotional tour. Um, so just tell me sub um, 
Not drinking poison. What's the best way to jump onto that? Just uh, do a Google search for me or, or for uh, for not drinking poison, and it should be one of the two first two results. And it's uh, it's on the Substack platform. I made it as cheap as possible. The Substack platform makes you ask for uh, if you do if you do paid subscriptions. Oh, really? Uh, which I do. So um, to you, it's more about hitting the minimum low and getting people in. Well, I wanted to. The, like I don't think patient. this should be completely Mandarin knowledge. Um, what a real wine is, and and you know, and what I what I try to express on this with this newsletter. And as I was saying, the newsletter is where I put a lot of interviews with winemakers. I realize it's my favorite format these days because I just I go there and I, and I do an interview like we're doing now. Only I don't I I don't put it on a podcast. I transcribe it. Right. Um, and I translate it to English. What's the uh, current story? Can you remember? Oh gosh! I looked. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, me too. I forget. Well, even I, better I, I, I motivation. Did, I, 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 I've for been writing a lot about, about Burgundy recently because there's a there's a lot of really as uh, a beautiful and very dynamic and welcoming uh, scene of young natural winemakers in Burgundy these days. Yeah, and, when uh, people think of Burgundy, they think of it a certain way. Don't think way. of welcoming. <laughs> but when you think of it, you know, from the natural wine perspective, there's a lot of exciting things going on. All right, Aaron, we've been at this almost an hour. I told you to go quickly. I want you to do a thing that we call the wine list, where we ask our guests preferences. It's very spontaneous. Don't dwell on it. Five questions. We ask everyone the same five questions. Here's the first question: okay. What are you drinking now? Not like the second, but oh. like what, like as the seasons change or when you travel, you drink differently than at home. What's in your fridge? You know, what are you doing for research? I really love. Uh, I really love this. Uh, it's Czech birch sap. Czech from Czechoslovakia. It's not Wait, wine. <laughs> spell it. It's a birch sap. So the birch tree. Is it like February like a March, birch you beer can, you, soda? Not you, can, even? you can pierce them, and you you know you get the sap. And uh, there's a, a friend and you know, called Jan Klimesh. In, uh, he's he's based in the Czech countryside near a lot of birch forests, and he hit upon this recipe of lacto fermenting birch sap. So it's a way to preserve it without filtration so or using additives. Do you add anything to it, or do you just drink he, the he, lacto he, he does birch various infusions with it. Um, he also makes some that are just the birch sap lacto fermented, and because uh, you wait, you know, after four months it lacto ferments, and it's uh, and it's a beautiful non-alcoholic uh, drink right, with a light so sparkle and no sugar. I'm tell you that sugar. nobody has ever given me that answer, <laughs> and you had to figure. I love out it. That. I've been making some myself these days as well. <laughs> um, it's delicious. Your birch sap. So give me yeah. something a little more traditional. Okay. Okay, okay. If it has to be alcoholic, <laughs> yeah, twisting your arm. Um, you can't uh, see it. Let's see. What do I? What do I? I mean, gosh. In terms of wines that I've kind of come back Is to. Is there often. a region or a producer? I mean, are you focusing on anything? I, I love um. What well, my friends at Clofontine in the Languedoc. Right. Um, you worked with them. Yeah. For the, for the second year in a row, I've done, I've done harvest and a little bit of vinification work with them, and uh, they also encouraged me to make some wine last year, which I'm doing on a very non-professional kind of hobbyist basis, but. Uh, I, I absolutely adore their wines. Uh, okay, so Clofantine. Yeah. So on, the Birch yeah. Sap and Clofantine. I'll take those. Yeah. All right, second question. Fun question, goofy question. Favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you eat every night or every month, but is there something that when it's there, it's like, ooh, ah? I don't know. I, I, I usually the way you're reacting, it's not well, something. It doesn't seem like something. I, I usually find myself getting into rants against food pairing whenever whenever anyone mentions food pairing, just because I, I I find it's a very, it's sort of this discourse that comes from our overabundance of choices in cuisine, which is just a feature of, uh, you know, of this late capitalist stage of mass transport everywhere, eating guavas in midwinter and. 
God knows where, you know, in Alaska, you know, right. like, and uh, as everyone's a summer fruit, exactly. but we'll grow it in like Patagonia. And, and we're wondering and sh- what will go with it in the, you know, you know, if we're having like a, a, a sushi burrito or something, what goes with that? I don't so, know. Nothing goes with that. So <laughs> the answer. The answer is no answer. No, no. I mean, okay, in terms of, I'm I, okay I, with that. No, you just you. No, I like. I mean, like for example, like if I ever eat a roast chicken, you know, like I love like some good Beaujolais with that, some good Cru Beaujolais, some Fleury, like Beaujolais some Morgan, with almost you know, with, anything. With, with, with some roast. Actually, funnily enough, in the you know in the region itself, it's always pork this, pork that, constant, constant pork. And I love pork as well as much as the next Wait, guy. Wait, so Beaujolais is a lot of within within with the pork? Re, within the region. Right. It's just like they, they say, lo, you know, lard is really? the favorite vegetable, really, and you know, pork <laughs> is the, you know it just, it's just constant pork in the Beaujolais. But uh, but really, I, I find that those wines, for me, they taste better with a roast chicken. But it is what it is. So. All right. Third question. These are tough questions for you. I mean, you're, you, it's different for you. I ask everyone favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And I ask that not like to pick your favorite or leave stuff out, but I ask you just to throw out a few places where the list is great, the vibe is great, the people are great, their knowledge is great. And I think the book kind of answers that question two, three times over. Oh, no, I mean... Like but a, when I ask you personally, I mean, yeah. is there a place you find yourself at? These days, the the restaurant Le Soleil in Savigny les Bones, so near Bone in, in, um, in uh, Burgundy. Wait, what's the name of it? It's called Le Soleil, which means the sun. Oh, Le yeah, Soleil, yeah. yeah. Um, a couple other people sunshine, on the show yeah. have mentioned that. In and it's a beautiful, beautiful restaurant. And my, my friends uh, Leila Auba and uh, Svante Forstorp are in the kitchen there these days. And uh, they make they, they do a very radical thing in the kitchen where they try to eliminate the use of plastic in the kitchen, um, which is a is an extremely radical thing, and it changes all of their gestures. They also, as a as a political thing, they they don't work with a dishwasher. They wash all their own dishes during and throughout service, and that also changes their gestures and how they create their dishes. Uh, pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 very revolutionary. I think what they're doing from that's a, a good yeah, one. Yeah. I don't that. Somebody had mentioned that in the past. And Lola, the owner, is is such a wonderful, wonderful personality. That's a good one. All right, we'll leave it at that. All right, so here's the fourth question. The fourth question is Aaron Iscoff's favorite all-time wine. All-time wine? Now, when I initially structured the question, when I started doing the show, I wanted to find out guys like you, like, what's the rarest, coolest, most expensive wine you ever drank? I've morphed away from the question. I'm more interested in what's the wine that was important to you, either a gateway, changed the way you thought about it, open your eyes, just a significant wine in your journeys to yeah. this day. It can um, be more than one, but... Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, Yvonne Metras uh, is a winemaker in Fleury in the Beaujolais, and his, um, his Fleury Vievin from the year 2000, I tasted it in 2013. Um, over dinner at a restaurant called Le Pot de Tan near Chablis. What was and, the name uh, of the restaurant? Uh, Le Pot de Tan. Um, and uh, that was just absolutely singing. It was, it was a moving, beautiful, extremely like rose-scented, uh, gorgeous fleury. I mean, there's a, there's a, for me, everyone always lumps the wines of the Beaujolais in with Burgundy on wine lists just habitually. But I really feel that the region has so much more kinship with the Northern Rhone and uh, I think Yvonne Metras's Fleury in a beautiful vintage is, uh, you really see that it has a, it has a real, uh, it's like there's some kind of like underground, you know, like link with uh, Saint Joseph, with like, uh, the, like the, really? Santa, the Santa Pin from Hervé Suo has like a, you know, can, can have a similar profile. Because um, those are two of my favorite regions. 
yeah. you know, the Northern Ronin. And particularly um, Green Midi, you know, where, where am it belongs. Am I wrong in saying this? And I shouldn't even bring it up, but it's hard to get Matras and it's expensive. Yes, yeah. And I mean, that, yeah, even in France, it's become hard to get me. his stuff. But eh, what can you do? I mean, but we talked about it earlier. Yeah. How you know it's things. Yeah. Really, if I if I were being very conscientious, I would I I should have I should have referred to a wine that is not famous yet. <laughs> so can you think of one? Oh, ones that have moved me hugely. Absolutely. Give yeah. me give me. Let's balance it with one of those. I mean, uh, another one from let's see. I mean, I've already mentioned Clofontaine. I probably shouldn't mention them again. Uh, well, we may mention them in the next <laughs> sentence, but I'm not sure. But go ahead. Um, the, the the cuvee Plan B from Lilian Boche. That's also not a very large production wine, but it's a. Uh, I think it's a, and it's also from the Beaujolais, coincidentally. Um, but it's it's made from uh, Muscaris and Souvenir Gris. It's made from hybrid white wines that are planted in kind of this sort of low-lying, sandy bit of Lancier, which is a Beaujolais village village uh, adjacent to Fleury, but it's not considered to be particularly noble or interesting terroir. Wow. Um, and uh, this wine, I think, is extremely important because it should change the region. Um, the Beaujolais, it's very, very, it's nearly impossible to make excellent white wines with nice acidity in that region. It just doesn't happen. The Chardonnay is what they say in French, mou. You know, it's just, it's <laughs> like it's flabby and it's, yeah, uh, no it's, good. it's kind of candied That's and a good lame. Wine. And, uh, and you taste this. You know, there's a, there's, France has very much yet to embrace uh, hybrid grape varieties, which are. You know, Vitis vinifera crossed with American uh, grape vine material to produce vines that require less or zero treatments against mildew and oidium. To give you the long explanation, but uh, that is um, <laughs> for our listeners. And uh, but this one from uh, Lilian Boche is absolutely beautiful. There's a, a really well judged inclusion of lees in the winemaking process. It's it's textural. It's beautiful. It has a nice acidity. It's agile. Uh, and that, that should, that's, for me, that's a white wine that should change the region. Everyone should rip up yeah, the Chardonnay. Yeah, I hope to see that. And, I mean, uh, I'm glad you brought it up and pointed it out and, and talked plant, to us a little uh, about plant it. some hybrids there. All right, here's the last question, and I think you should be able to help me with this. You know, I'm sitting down with everybody in wine from every walk of life, and I'm always kind of looking for, recommend to me the best wine, 15 20 22 bucks, a red and a white. And here's the setup. You know, my kids are in their 20s. They can't bring to a party or give a gift of crappy $11 industrial supermarket wine, yeah. but they don't have 40, 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. So is there anything you could think of about that? Like I always thought Muscadet is a pretty good value for that. What do you think? I like Mark Penneau's Mus Muscadet. Uh, there's, there's, but he's no longer within the Muscadet appellation. He was kicked out. Oh, he was? Yeah. Um, Can you think of anything around the, I, I, I mean, the, the Muscadet appellation, I mean, just to, just to kick, it, kick it in the pants a little bit. I, 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 the Muscadet appellation is a disaster. It has, it has like a minimum yield requirement, which is completely demented. Like, you know, they, they, will, they will come down on a, on a winemaker for doing too low yields. Which really? is generally, that's, you know, how you get a qualitative winemaking is you do a little lower yields. You don't try and... Uh, you know, make everything. And That's crazy. I, it, it's all. I mean, it's, it's also. It's. It's just. So can you every, think every, of anything? Nearly unanimously filtered and mallow blocked muscadet. It's like Jesus. Uh, I, I opened up a can of worms. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like quite high <laughs> sulfite levels. We there. could do a show on that. Major high sulfite levels. As what well. about like yeah. vino verde or something? I mean, give me. It's probably also pretty filtered, mallow blocked aye. as well. Aye. That stuff. Uh, but, so Aaron, you have to tell me uh, I mean, some I, good I, value. Well, but the thing is, I always try to say like you know. Appala one of the big messages, you know, that natural wine, the natural wine movement 
pushes you know throughout is that appellations unfortunately are not a very good guarantor uh, of or a guarantee of, of value or of quality or even so of forget style. Appellation, then. So forget appellations, forget entire regions. Um, it's really about the name of the winemaker. And I figure, you know, I often fall back on the, you know, the metaphor like, you know, even if you're not a major film buff, you can probably remember the name of a director who makes some films you like. Right. You know, like whether it's uh, Almedovar or whatever, Fellini or, you know, could be anybody. So, but, uh, and I don't think that's too Mandarin to ask people to like just imagine the winemaker as if he's a director or he or she, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and try and remember their name. And there are some winemakers that, Consistently produce absolutely beautiful value, you know, Give me well a couple wines. of names. Jeff Coutelou, for example, Jean-François Coutelou. Um, he's based uh, north of the town of Béziers uh, in the Languedoc, uh, and his wines are criminally underpriced, if you ask me. All right, that's um, that's why I ask these questions. And he's a lovely man, an incredible guy. Give me one other. Um, Mark Penot, the guy we were just talking about who's in the Muscadet Appellation, but he's not Muscadet, his wines are an extraordinary value, extraordinary value and uh, they age forever. Really? Yeah. I've had a lot of old wines from him. And these are wines that like, you can buy at a, at a wine shop in Paris, at least, for like 14 bucks or 14 euros. You know? Wow. And, uh, and I've, had, I've had some dating back you know, 10 years, 10, 12 years, and they're beautiful. They, they do, they, they're ageless. They're pretty amazing. So I didn't mention this, but... You know, we promote the show on social media, mm-hmm. and I post, I do, you know, Aaron's wine list, because people listen every week, and they want to get some, you know, intel or suggestions, you know, from you, so we, we post the wine list. All right, we have to wrap up the show, okay. but before we do that, we do a segment called the Weekly Wine Tasting, and we're not going to get into it, but I think in front of us, Jorge poured us a Laurent Sayard is it S-A-I-L-L-A-R-D? Does that sound right? You think this is Sayard? I think it's a Sayard. Jorge. I don't know if it's Sayard. Is this the Sayard? I don't know if it is. I don't, I don't, right, I don't so think it is. I don't think it is. Tell me what we're to me, drinking. To me, it t- I, to me, it tastes a little more like... I, 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 I would hazard a guess. Maybe. So this is our weekly wine sip. So Jorge, what are we drinking? It, it tastes... It, Wait, should we have um, Aaron try to guess what it is? I'm perfectly happy getting it wrong uh, live. I, you know? I suck at this. Go ahead. My, like, my, my first guess... Like my first instinct was kind of tending towards like a Jurassian Pinot of some kind, but then I, but then like the length wasn't quite that. I ended up kind of gravitating. It tastes a little bit like um, the work of Pierre André in uh, in Lorraine, um, but he but he of course he pours sources grapes elsewhere. Um, but uh, but that, those would be my first kind of instincts. Yeah. I have no idea. I, I pick no. up no, but I yeah. pick up a nice saline quality and I pick up. A, yeah. All right. All right, so while he's doing that, we'll tell everyone what we're drinking. Um, where can people buy the book? And I, I asked that question because I, I, I don't in, uh, always say go to Amazon. You know, where? Of course, yeah. I, I only found out recently that someone told me that Amazon owns Book Depository. Because I've been telling people to go to Amazon or Book Depository, and now I realized I was giving like a false choice. Anyway, but um, uh, in, in the USA, uh, uh, I believe it's pretty much wherever books are sold. You can get so it. So go you know, to support I mean, your small yeah, support bookseller, local, yeah, your exactly. local bookseller. Um, everyone's got it or has access when to it. When people come out, they can go to um, Not Drinking Poison and see your appearances, right? You'll be exactly, selling yeah, book books? Yes, at all, okay. yeah, all the appearances. We'll be going to a lot of different cities. So there's that. Oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. So we have a reveal. You have it covered up here. Go ahead. 
Oh, no shit. Wow. Wait, 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 wait. 21. Nice. Wow. Who is it? Jorge? It is a 50 max. Yeah. I can't uh, believe I didn't get that. Can't believe I didn't Lynch get that. Lynch wine, too. I can't believe it. This, pretty, is, this, pretty is, awesome. the, this is the caviar of uh, Primeros. It's the, the caviar of Beaujolais Nouveau. Oh, but no, no, this is not the Milo. This is his uh, Beaujolais Village. Yeah, exactly. When you say caviar of Beaujolais Nouveau, why do you say that? Well, he makes the best one every does? year. Uh, his Cuvée Fonchon. But this is Mary Lou. His, the, both of these Cuvées are named after his daughters. Mary Lou is his uh, eldest, eldest daughter. I, um, so I'm going to post a picture of the wine beautiful. so that people know I about it. Yeah. So... And I'm guessing because it's Kermit Lynch, you know, you can get it. It's distributed, right? Yeah. It's sold out. Of course. We were talking about that. We're talking yeah. about the whole natural wine movement. You can't hey, get shit. Hey, the, 2022, the 2022 premiere is about to come out, at least in France. All right. Uh, so everyone's on their own on that. All right, Aaron, we have to wrap up. Let me just do a quick show wrap up. And I want to get some other information. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Um, if you like the podcast, leave a good review. Um, follow us on Instagram at sbenruby, on Twitter at benruby. I know that's confusing, but you can always reach us through the hashtag the Grape Nation. On Facebook, we're at the Grape Nation. Um, as I mentioned, we will post Aaron's wine list answers. There's some interesting stuff there. I may have to email him to get me some spelling or some clarifications on names. Um, I will also post the wine we had for the weekly wine sip um, on our media sites. So, Aaron, support your local bookseller to buy the book. Come out and see you, and you can buy a book. You'll sign it for people. If you're in the middle of nowhere, you're lazy, you can go on Amazon. If we want to, we talked about uh, your Substack um, uh, newsletter. If we want to follow you on social media, where yeah, do we go? Yeah, I'm on all of them. I'm on, you know. Under what? Uh, my, my Instagram handle is my name, Aaron Aiskoff. Okay, um, so it's... Or there's a Not Drinking Boys on Instagram. Is it at A-A-R-O-N-A-Y-S-C-O-U-H? C-O-U-G-H. C-O-U-G-H. I yeah. meant that. I yeah. just didn't yeah. say it. Um, so that's where you can find Aaron. You can follow him. And it's a very exciting time for Aaron. The book is terrific. Um, I mean that sincerely. It's definitely a reference for me, and it's very enjoyable. And I think it's a book a lot of us have been waiting for. So thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you for thank having me on. Thank you for writing Pleasure. the book. And here's a little secret. And Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the first podcast you ever did? This is my first podcast. Hey, you, We've you just did popped good. my podcast. You did cherry. good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you did good. Yeah. All right, thank you to our guest, Aaron. Um, thanks to our engineers at the Heritage Radio. Thank you to everyone at Heritage Radio. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.